this song that I'm going to be singing is kind of my story right now. For the past couple of years, it's been a, a tough road. Right. So <laughs> um, he's been faithful. Failed to believe that 
God, he's been faithful, faithful to me. Yes, he's been faithful. Oh, he's been faithful to me. Good morning, family. <clears throat> there are some days when you just feel like staying in bed, you know. I read a fun, funny joke one time where a guy was telling this to his wife. Man, I just don't want to go to church today, but you have to. No, I don't. Why do I have to? Because you're the pastor. <laughs> and, you know, <clears throat> um, the, the interesting thing is, is I've... I've, I've kind of been sick all week, so I've had a long time to write a lot of stuff down. So, but I believe that it'll be a blessing to each of us as we review just the power of the resurrection. Uh, today, I just want to recognize a few people that mean a lot to me. Um, some friends of mine that kind of go back into my past, um, the first ones are Rod and Lynn Trensel. Where are you at? Right back here in the back. Now, Rod and Lynn, they were at one time the pastors here. And I remember specifically <clears throat> when they moved here, um, somehow they communicated to the rest of the pastors that they had moved to the most beautiful place uh, in the whole conference. And so when Debbie and I moved here, those thoughts resonated with me. I thought of that. But actually... Um, the story of my life goes back further than Rod and Lynn. It goes actually back to Rod's father, Arnold, right? And Arnold came to Ketchikan, Alaska when I was 16 years old and going through a very rebellious time in my life. And I didn't want to go to Christian school anymore. I didn't want God in my life anymore. And old man Shrensel comes up to our house there in Ketchikan and he invites me to run the soundboard for his meetings. Very deep voice. And so <clears throat> that young 16-year-old ran the soundboard. And during those meetings, I gave my heart to Jesus. And uh, so I thank God many times for Arnold and his commitment to preach a series of sermons for a small group of people that showed up that there was a 16-year-old boy running the sound that heard Jesus. So that was uh, very meaningful to me. Also, um, when I went to Auburn Academy years ago, um, there was a family that were our next-door neighbors, and that's uh, Jan and Todd and Steve um, Davis. And they were um, a family just right across from the fence line of our fence. So... Uh, we worked together on many occasions there at the academy. And Debbie and I have jokingly called Jan Dr. Jan. 
She doesn't know this. She's going to hear this for the first time. But we've referred to her as Dr. Jan because she diagnosed me. One day she said to me, well, <clears throat> I know you have ADHD. <laughs> I said, really? She goes, oh, yeah, I can see it a mile away. <laughs> so I, I came home, and so from then on, we've always called Jan Dr. Jan because I got my diagnosis from her. <laughs> uh, it's pretty fun. Uh, we love you guys very much, and we're certainly glad to have you with us here today. <clears throat> um, I know that within our congregation, I'm not the only one sick today. In fact, I've, several have reached out to me just this morning. So if you're listening online today, which I know a number of you are, uh, our prayers are with you, and um, we're just thankful to be a part of the family of God. You know... <sighs> I remember when I was in college, and the question the instructor asked us is, what sets Christianity, the religion of Christianity, apart from all other religions? And a couple different things came out, but really the thing that sets it apart is the resurrection, the resurrection of Christ from the dead. I've got something I want to read to you, if it'll show up here. This is um, from the book, The Other Side of Death. It says, the resurrection is a sign for unbelievers as well as the answer for the believer's doubt. It serves as the guarantee that Jesus' teachings are true and is the center of the gospel itself. Further, the resurrection is the impetus for evangelism, the key indicator of the believer's daily power Notice that word, power. We're going to be dealing with that quite a bit today. To live the Christian life. And the reason for the total commitment of our lives. The resurrection, amen, even addresses the fear of death and is related to the second coming of Jesus. Lastly, this event is a model of the Christian's resurrection from the dead and provides a foretaste of heaven for the believer. Isn't that beautiful? Paul would go on to say... That if Christ has not been raised, our faith is futile and we are still in our sins. So the resurrection is more important even than his death. Or I should say as important, right? I mean the whole experience of Christ from birth to resurrection and beyond is important for the believer. This life-giving power dynamite that awakens a crucified corpse to life is the same energy that can run through the heart of the converted Christian. And that, to me, is worth talking about. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, we certainly want to hear your voice, your spirit speaking to our hearts. And dear Lord, there's a lot of beautiful power untapped in the Christian's life. And so dear Lord, I would just pray that today as we just meditate upon your power, upon the sweet presence of your spirit, that we might just be able to sense the strength that you, our God, have in our life and being able to turn our lives over to you so that you might do that good and faithful work. And we'll be very careful to give you the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.
when we go back to our first parents, to that beautiful garden, there wasn't the slightest mutation of sin anywhere. There was only perfection and, and love and, and joy that existed. I, I've thought many days about those days, and we really can't, we don't know how long it was that they existed in that perfect environment until sin interrupted. But our first parents were perfectly formed from the hand of God, and they must have, I don't know if you've thought about this or not, but they must have been pre-programmed with a language, right? As children, we grow up learning languages, but they were adults, perfectly formed, and they must have been pre-programmed with a language. And for you to hear a language, it's the sounds that you hear. But you interpret those sounds. You have understanding of what those sounds mean. And so somehow God had to give Adam and Eve uh, a dictionary version, at least, of what it meant to communicate and be able to understand certain things. But in their newly formed mind, they would hear words that were probably very difficult to understand. And these are the words I would think... Genesis 2 says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to care for it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. Death. A word. How do I interpret that? How do I understand that? What does that even mean? When vibrant life is all around you, when you have just sprung forth from the heavenly hands of God Almighty, when everything is good and perfect, and you hear those words, you will certainly die. There must be a strange sort of curiosity as to what that word might even mean, let alone the long-standing repercussions of death and dying. Pastor Bill has told me many times as we've talked on the phone, he, had said, he said to me, Adam and Eve really never fully understood what it would, the result of this thing would be called sin. And so very quickly in the Bible, very quickly, just two chapters in, chapter three then, we begin the chapter with the deceiver's skills and cunning lies that would, would achieve the entrance of sin and the suffering into our planets. And so I want to take a, a, just a few moments to look very closely at this lie mounted by Satan, heaven's fallen angel. He says to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Notice the trickery of the question. The question is not a yes or no. The question is a response for an explanation and the woman has to engage now in an explanation to the serpent. We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God said you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, or you must not touch it or you will die. This conversation Eve has with Satan, the question of death is central to the argument. But of course, we know that the real central Issue is whether I can trust God or not. 
whether I can trust what God is saying or not. But dying is the subject. It is perfectly clear to Eve that she understands God's instruction. She repeats God's words of instruction perfectly. You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. I heard a sermon recently. It talked about the significance of the tree being in the middle of the garden. And the way the minister kind of talked about it is, if you think about it, you have to pass all the other trees, all the other delicious trees to get to the middle of the garden. You see, Satan uses the attitude of, I'm not satisfied. I want more. I want something I cannot have. And when God, he comes into our life, he gives us the attitude that I am thankful for what I do have. So Eve walks past the, the pears and the peaches and the apples and the mangoes to go to the center, the tree in the middle, that which she couldn't have. And there the tempter was waiting. Dear family, one thing that this speaks to me is review your blessings daily. Count them one by one. And thank God for what God has given you. What God has surrounded you with. There's always something we don't have. But what is it that we can praise God for even today? Now let's look at Satan's first lie. A lie in direct contradiction with the words of Eve's creator. Eve knew exactly what God had said. But here it comes, big, bold, and without shame. Satan says, you will not certainly die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God knowing good and evil. Down through the ages of time, this lie has stayed cunningly strong. If you think of old Egyptian nations that built the huge pyramids, you know, when the Pharaoh would die, it wouldn't just be his death. Oh, no, 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 no. The whole court would be killed. All the wives would be killed. The animals would be killed. They would all be put into the chamber with the Pharaoh so that he could go on to his afterlife. There's been a lot of strange teachings centered around death. Islam and most of Christianity believes that when a person dies, they immediately are in the courts above. I haven't been to too many funerals where they say to the family, well, we know that Jack is now in hell burning hot and furiously because of his life. No, I've never heard that. But you see, there's all kinds of strange teachings around death and dying. So much confusion and misinformation. It wouldn't take Eve long to see the outgrowth of this lie in the death of her boy, Abel. Brutally beaten and bloodied by none other than her own son, Cain. And at this point, I think we ought to stop and think a little bit about what we know about death. Our knowledge has to be derived from the Bible. For even if a serpent comes and talks to us, a miraculous event, the Bible is our only safeguard for what is truth. 
what is what we can trust. One key that unlocks the understanding of death are those miraculous words that tell us how we received life. The Bible says, Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being, or as the King James would say, a living soul. Lovingly, painstakingly, God bent low the earth, and he begins to form man. Isn't it a beautiful thing to know that God just didn't speak us into existence? I love that. He forms us with his own hands. And the material is the dust, the dirt, you might say the the clay of the earth. And slowly, with absolute precision, God sculpts out the head, the eyes, all the way down to the toes. He forms Adam. And then God gets a little closer, right? Down towards the dirt, he bends with the breath of heaven. And with the breath of celestial electricity, God breathed into those clay nostrils the breath of life. And immediately, millions, yes, possibly billions of cells and neurons and organs and skin begin to appear And blood begins to flow throughout this human structure. And a heart begins to perfectly beat life. And Adam, with that breath, that breath of life. So listen, dear family. The Bible makes it crystal clear that we are made of the dust. And we receive breath of life that is incredible. Incredibly, the text finishes that we became a living soul. One thing we like to mention here is that God did not give us a soul. We became a soul when he breathed his electricity, his life into our frame, into our bodies. Imagine that first blink of an eye. As Adam opens up his eyes for the first time and looks into the face of the one who made him. His creator had just given him life, pre-programmed with a language, and they begin to converse and talk about this beautiful home with all of its exquisite animals and delicate birds and beautiful surrounding vegetation. Of course, the only thing missing is clearly a helpmate for Adam. And so God does something amazing. He doesn't let Adam watch this happen. He puts Adam into sleep. And then he does the surgery. This way, Adam knows God did something, but wasn't exactly sure how it happened. Those days now are but a distant memory for with the entrance of the devil's lie and Eve's resulting sin of doubting God, now everything has changed. A son is dead. Arguments flare up. Fights happen. More death happens. Nature death happens. Sacrifices death happens. And they are banished from their garden home. There are weeds. There are thorns. There are thistles. This is the new reality of this earthly dwelling. And we are very acquainted with it. Amen? 
We live in that. We didn't have the chance to live in the Garden of Eden. We've lived outside of the Garden. You know, for 14 years, as you well know, I served as a police chaplain in Auburn. And just about any death you could describe, I've been to that death. So many times, sitting there with a grieving husband or a broken-hearted wife, those first few minutes of harsh reality when death has come and the brain doesn't want to doesn't accept it. The living fight for this confusion, this denial. I just talked to them. How could it be? Doesn't make sense. The begging, the pleading. Wake up, don't leave me, please wake up. But human words are so powerless over this enemy. Our words cannot break through that thick wall of death. The sleeping one makes no movement, no sign of sorrow, no hint of remorse, no trace of regret. He or she is gone. Death is a thief. It is no respecter of persons. It always comes uninvited and it never leaves. I've seen every response. I've seen the sobbing response to the rolling on the floor and screaming response. I've seen the faint response. I've seen it all. The brain hates death. And I believe first and foremost is because God made us for life. We were made, eternity was set in our hearts, and it has been stolen from us. And so death racks us every time. What exactly, according to the Bible, is death? Well, it seems that death is the opposite of life. With death, there is consciousness. With death, there is no consciousness. With life, there is joy and sorrow. There's emotion, but with death, there is nothing. With life, there is hope. There are dreams, there are plans. But with death, it's all gone. The Bible tells us, For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even their name is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. I don't know about you, but I've been to many funerals where people will say, we'll always remember this person. We'll always remember this person. But you know what? You won't. You can't. Because you yourselves will succumb to death. The only one who remembers is the one that ought to remember. That's God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. I'll never forget you. I want to stay, dear family, in the mind of God forever. The Bible refers to death as a sleep. Over and over, it talks about when someone went to sleep and was buried. David actually said, consider and hear me, oh my God, my Lord, my God. Lighten my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. 
Well, David eventually did die. And the Bible makes it clear for David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on sleep and was laid unto his fathers and saw corruption. In other words, his, his body deteriorated. Death is not, dear family, as the enemy would want us to believe, an alternate life away from this life. An afterlife where we, where we think and where we talk and where we love and where we have joy. That's not death. Death is a sleep until our creator, the life maker, wakes us up from our slumber. You know, of course, that the Bible calls death a, a, an enemy. The last enemy, the Bible reminds us, that will be destroyed, come on now, is death. Amen. It will be forever destroyed, forever, no longer in the universe. One thing that we must understand when it comes to death is it is an enemy, and it is not in God's plan. I've shared this before, <clears throat> but I've been at death scenes where mamas are holding their little baby that has just died. And they're hurting hard, hurting bad, hard to breathe. And I've had on multiple occasions Christians come into the room, family members, and say these very words. Multiple occasions have said, God wanted your baby more than you did. Can you imagine that? That you're all of a sudden thinking that God and Satan are working together for the loss of my child? As a chaplain, I, I always was very careful not to get too biblical, too preachy to people. But I soon learned that John 10.10 10 was a quote I had to quote. Jesus says, I have come that they may have life. The enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy. But Jesus says, I have come that they might have life more abundantly. Every time death happens to one person, or a hundred person, or a thousand persons, let me say this, the Lord is aware of each person and suffers with those who suffer. This last week, we lost someone in our community that most of you don't know. Some of you do. His name is Clifford. Clifford is from the Ho tribe and started drinking alcohol probably in his early teens. And became a homeless person here in Port Angeles. And so many times that we would feed Clifford. And sometimes we would have to go bring food to Clifford. I remember last winter, we got a whole bunch of blankets so Clifford could wrap up. But Clifford, his body couldn't handle the alcohol anymore. And he died on October 17. And I want to tell you something. God loves Clifford 
as much as any human being that has ever lived on planet Earth. That's the kind of love God has. Here's what we can know for certain. I know that Clifford is safe in the hands of the God who created him. And God takes all things into consideration. And he judges justly and with much mercy. And I have to say, family, I'm so thankful that I am not God. He understands it all. He understands the little boy who was pained and got him into the situation he was in. Now John tells us the events surrounding his friend Lazarus, the friend of Jesus. Lazarus becomes sick, so sick that very soon he dies of this illness. And listen to what Jesus says to his disciples. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going to wake him up. That's what Pastor Jay wants to do very soon from now. I want to go to sleep because if I go to sleep, it helps me feel better, right? That's what the disciples were thinking. His disciples were, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So you see, from, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, it's very clear. Sleep is the word God uses when he speaks of death. Very consistent. We now find Jesus making his way to Mary and Martha and Lazarus' house there in Bethany. And when Martha hears the news that Jesus is on his way, Martha runs out. Maybe she runs out with a little indignation. She's going to scold Jesus, right? Because Jesus delayed his coming. And so she says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Uh, But now I know that even now God can give you whatever you ask. There's no doubt that she understood that Jesus had a power. Jesus said to her, your brother's going to rise again. I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. I don't know about you, but that word resurrection is a beautiful word. It was the power of God that breathed life into our first parents, And they rose from their clay-shaped bodies to living, functional, perfect human beings. Then sin disrupted God's plan, God's desire and hope for humanity. But resurrection is God's solution to the enemy's shots. And yes, the devil may kill, steal, and destroy. And though it may appear dark, the enemy has hit hard. Dear friends, resurrection is coming. Resurrection is promised. The Bible tells us very clearly when it happens. Martha is clear with Jesus. I know he will rise again at the resurrection at the last day. Think about it. From Abel, the first death, to Lazarus, death has plagued planet Earth. 
death of fathers and mothers and children. Buckets, buckets and buckets of tears. So many tears throughout the years as the sorrow of death would steal loved ones from the, from the embrace of their family. But there would be one who would die and his death would be the most significant death of all. It was a willing death. Willing insofar that Jesus would not fight against it. The enemy would mount up all of his demonic forces. Together with the religious leaders, there would be a monumental death. It would be public, it would be painful, and it would be profound. This death would actually start in a garden. The Bible tells us that Jesus suffered as he prayed to his father. And the Bible tells us, he says, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. So heavy was this burden of sin, so cruel this weight of iniquity, that the very life and breath of Jesus begins to ebb out of him, even at the garden. Dr. Luke tells us in his 22nd chapter, an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus is now tasting the first bitterness of death. Everything after this happens so fast. While still in the garden, Judas, one of the inner twelve, comes and kisses him to betray him. Peter cuts off a servant's ear. And look and listen to what Jesus does and what Jesus says. First, Jesus, the creator, picks up the ear and places it back on the man. And then Jesus says, do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? You see, dear family, Jesus holds back his power. Jesus is purposely and with absolute determination going to the cross he is taking our punishment, our wages for our sins, and he is being bruised for our iniquities. The evening continues. There's a mock trial through the night. Peter, the nearby fire reflecting upon his face, begins to deny Jesus, even calls down curses upon himself. We are told that just as the cock crows three times, Jesus turns. The, the bruised, the humiliated Jesus turns to Peter and looks at him. And he sees in Jesus' love and compassion. The Bible tells us that Peter departs into the darkness. Go right back out into the very garden where death began to happen with Jesus. And I believe in that garden something else died that night where Peter self died in that same garden.
Bible tells us that very early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. It is Friday morning, and the demonic forces have mounted an all-out assault on Jesus. Lies, false accusations, and screams of crucify him from the crowd all add to this experience of death that Jesus is experiencing. The Romans take him, they slap him, they beat him, they place thorn-woven crown upon his head. And even though he is pronounced innocent by the governor, the crowd cannot be quieted. They now want Barabbas released and Jesus crucified. Death is now not only just knocking at the door, it is entering the house. A beam is placed upon his back and the walk begins. They refer to this walk as the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering. It represents the path that Jesus took as he stumbles and is forced by the Roman soldiers to walk the way up to the crucifixion. The winding route is a distance of approximately 2,000 feet. On this day, the route is lined with hostile crowd hurling insults at him as he wears the crown of thorns and carries the beam on his back. Some have estimated that the walk could have been well over an hour it took him as he stumbles, faints under the weight of the beam. It is one of the most dramatically emotionally charged scenes in the Bible. Finally, Jesus approaches the place of crucifixion. Two other hang bloody, already there, dripping blood from their open wounds. It's an ugly, even disturbing scene. Yet no one need force Jesus to stretch out upon the cross. For he has come from heaven for this very moment. For he, the life giver, has come for this reason. To surrender his life in death. So that we might live forever. His hands are outstretched. His feet are tucked together. Jesus begins to experience our death for our sins on our cross. After the nails fasten him to the cross, he is hoisted up vertically into a vertical position. And now his body weight seeks to suffocate him from breathing. From breathing. He, the breath of life. Yet now every breath that ebbs from his excruciating pain just to get a little more air in. Death is getting a little closer now. Life is going fast from his human frame. Yet as Jesus, suffering under the weight of our sins, fills the distance from his heavenly Father, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Think about those words. They're significant. They're filled with more pain than the physical pain that he is experiencing from those humans. This is the taste of death that even Jesus couldn't have prepared for. 
Its bitterness is beyond human understanding. He who has been one with the Father from eternity past now begins to swallow the bitter separation of what sin does to us as Jesus enters the darkest part of his death. Dear family, please know, Jesus sees no light at the end of this tunnel. He comprehends no glory beyond the grave. He experiences only the darkest, blackest separation from his heavenly Father. All he knows as he is dying on the cross is that his death will result in our resurrection and eternal life. He would rather lose himself so that we might have the chance to be forgiven forever. What amazing grace. What a God. Finally, Jesus utters two very profound words. The first is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Forgive the anger. Forgive the lies, the brutality, the high and lofty religious condemnation. Forgive them all, dear Father, for they have no idea who they are crucifying. They are crucifying their very creator. And then, with one final breath, Jesus cries out, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit, my breath. His body goes limp. His frame ceases from the convulsions. The one in the middle is dead. The Bible tells us that the earth shakes. The lightning and the thunders crash. And I can only, I can't even imagine the silence as heaven watched God's son Die for us. He is removed from the cross. And yes, there are tears and broken hearts. His followers draw back with, with the shattered dreams that they had had of a better future. A just and fair kingdom. What was happened now doesn't make sense, and in fact, they're scared now for their very lives that that would be their fate as well. They flee and they hide. All their hopes have melted away. Jesus is dead. Luke records, and I find this interesting actually, that not one disciple helps take Jesus down from the cross. Actually, it'll be two Pharisees. Think about it. The Bible says, Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man who had not consented to their decision. He came from the Judea town of Arimathea, and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. The Bible says, Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb cut out in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day. The Sabbath was about to begin. That's Dr. Luke. But the book of John adds this in John 19. 
Along with Joseph, he was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jew, Jew, Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid, because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. He died on Friday, the preparation day. And how apropos it would be that just like at the beginning of creation, he rests on the Sabbath there in the tomb. We are told that the religious leaders were a bit nervous about his disciples stealing Jesus away and giving the fact that possibly, you see, he had proclaimed that he would come back to life. And this actually kind of surprised me when I caught this this week. They recognized that he had prophesied he was resurrect, would resurrect. The disciples seemed like it just went right over their head. Sometimes you get so close to somebody you can't really see what's going on, right? But the religious leaders remembered. And so they went to Pilate to station guards around the tomb. But we know that there were more than just Roman guards around that tomb. Because we talked about a few weeks ago about the great controversy. Satan and his demonic hosts were there. They were there surrounding that tomb. They knew they had to keep the giver of life dead in the tomb. They knew that he could not be resurrected. He must not be resurrected. He must stay dead for all eternity. And so all of evil stood around that tomb. But wait. The crucified one stirs. His eyes twitch. His lungs inhale. Life begins to surge through his body. A life full of potent energy gushes from head to toe. The one who was dead is now very much alive. He has broken the chains. He has conquered the broken down the walls of death. He has defeated the enemy. The Bible tells us there was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were as white as snow. And the guards, <laughs> well, the guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. I'm so glad to know that it just takes one angel from heaven to disperse all the demonic forces. We are safe in the presence of Jesus. We are safe when we cry out for his companionship. It doesn't matter what happens to us on this earth, whether in life or in death, we are safe in his hands, for they are eternal hands. And they have been resurrected from the dead. 
His resurrection is our assurance of resurrection. In fact, the Bible says, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Now look at this one. I love this text. But each in their own turn, Christ was the first fruits of the resurrection. And then when he comes, those who belong to him. Oh, family, there's a day coming. There's a day coming when you will be able to wrap your arms around those who have passed away. There's a day coming when God's voice will call forth his children and awake them to welcome them into eternal life. But beyond that, for the present, dear family, please know that that resurrection power is not just reserved for the resurrection of the saints when he appears. That resurrection power is active and it is moving even within you today. Paul emphatically wrote to the Philippians and then in the Ephesians, Ephesians 1, 18 and 20, I pray also that the eyes of your hearts may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And his incomparable great, say it with me now, power for us who believe. Say it again, that power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly realms. Friends, we are not without power. We are with the exact same power that raised Jesus from the grave. That's the power we can live with today. Are you scared of anything? You've got God's power. Are you fearful about something? Feel at peace in God's power. There's no need to worry. The resurrection of Jesus is a power that is actively working upon us today. It converts, it humbles, it enriches, and it blesses. It's a power that actually will unify God's people. It will strengthen God's people. It touches to the core of our hearts, and it melts the hardness of our attitudes. It's a power that is real, and God wants us to experience it. One day, we will be able to proclaim, where, O oh, death, is your sting? Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Life everlasting will be our heritage. No longer a promise to look forward to, but a fact of reality we will celebrate in. Dear family and friends, right here we have much to praise God for. For the power of the resurrection is changing my life and your life even today. So may we be touched by his power. May we be moved by his presence and humbled by his life. May we feel his breath breathe life into our hearts. For when that happens, we are not the same. For we have tasted and experienced the power of resurrection. Amen.